Jesus' name, amen. Well, a powerful experience of God's grace and goodness to us uh, already this morning, is it not? In everything that we have done. Our prayer is that that will continue now as we turn to His Word. Please join me in opening your Bibles to the book of Galatians, chapter 1. As you're opening there, I want, to, uh, I want, to th- I want us to think together about why we might start this year off with the study of the book of Galatians. Now, we are in some interesting times as Christians today, aren't we? I think a pretty f- what will wind up being a very fascinating time period in church history. Uh, some unique things that we deal with, but much that is the same as has been for all Christians of all times. We've always been called to stand out as God's people in a hostile world, haven't we? We are Christ's ambassadors. We are a part of the new creation that he is working and undertaking through the Holy Spirit. And I, for one, am thankful that the times that we're living in right now are actually making it easier for those who belong to Christ to represent themselves as such. You could say it negatively. It's good for us that the opportunity for God's people to blend in to the world around us is being taken away. As that takes our particular form and our particular context, though, one of the things that's interesting is we're seeing the cultural conversation start to line up. Uh, How will this battle look for us in our time, in this decade, in this generation? And one of the things we're finding is that as Christians who want to stand out for our Lord, standing for, you could call them generic good things, is not what's going to distinguish us from the world around us. Standing for generic goods that are not defined um, is not going to set us apart. Standing for things like love or justice, good words but undefined words, that's not going to set us apart either. Evil men rarely feel themselves to be evil, do they? They rarely think of themselves as evil. In other words, they live according to ideals, same as everyone else. I was just reading in a book here recently that brought up the example of the Bolshevik Revolution in Russia in the early 20th century. If you remember that, uh, that experience, which led to mass killings in Russia, uh, what he brings up in this book is he brings up the origins of that revolution and the sorts of, of calls that were given that led to the devastation, and he points out that the whole movement was structured around the causes, get this, of justice and love. Generic ideals are not going to distinguish us. Everyone has them. What distinguishes Christians has to do with the way that we choose to measure and understand those sorts of things. What is our criteria? And we have always known as the people of God that we take our criteria from His Word, right? From the whole revelation of God, one of the things we're going to see this morning is that we could get even more specific than that. We take our criteria 
from what his word has shown us concerning the person and the work of Jesus Christ. That's what will distinguish us. That's what's going to keep us from coming to echo the world around us in dark times. So how will we come to think about our lives, about our times? How will we come to think about reality itself through the lens of Jesus Christ in the year 2021? As a local body, Evangelical Fellowship, well, here's what we're going to do. What we're going to do is we're going to study the book of Galatians. And then we're going to turn after that and we're going to study the book of the Gospel of John. We are people of the book. This is what we need to conform our thinking. And that's why you're turned to Galatians chapter 1. Galatians is going to make us think very carefully about the time we're living in. And I don't mean the year 2021. What I mean is it's going to force us to consider just what really happened when Jesus Christ was crucified and buried and raised from the dead and ascended into heaven. What exactly happened? And how has that event dictated the hows, whys of God's people as we live our lives now, post-cross? So we're going to think in the book of Galatians about the crucifixion and the resurrection and the ascension. We're going to hear, even this morning, we're going to hear about the present evil age and the age that is to come. We're going to think about the commands of God and how the cross has affected God's commands regarding our life and practice. And as Paul leads us to think about these things, what's going to happen as we listen to him is we're going to be growing in our ability to think, period. That is to say, we'll be growing in our ability to think as Christians. So let's begin this morning by reading the passage. Would you please stand with me for the reading of God's Word? I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Galatians 1, verses 1 to 5. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Galatians is probably the earliest letter that Paul writes of all of his letters. It's a helpful sort of thing to understand as we come into a new study. It's, it's helpful when we start to study a particular book of the Bible to understand when it was written, most importantly to understand the situation that is being written about. What was going on that led to Paul needing to write this letter to this group of people? And there will be some specifics about the situation that we'll really look at when we get into chapter 2. We'll spend time looking at Acts 15, for example, and seeing what was going on. It's very important to understanding Paul's letter. Uh, thankfully for us this morning, Paul does a lot of the work for us in this introduction. In terms of understanding what he's about to address, what are the problems that we need to be aware were going on? Now, we want to understand the situation that he's writing into. And this Paul, this uh, well-trained, thoughtfully organized Paul, 
just in giving us the introduction that we've just read, he gives us a preview of the three matters he's going to be focusing on in this letter. And then he follows those up with a uh, doxology. So you take those three issues he's going to raise and the doxology, and you have our four components for the message this morning. We're just going to outline. We're going to follow what Paul is doing and try to understand it in the way that he has uh, intended. So what he does here is he's going to open the door. You, I, I've been thinking of it that way here in the last couple of weeks. He's cracking the door open on a discussion that he's then going to spend time in the letter really going into, and he does that with three things. Here are those three things. We see it in verse 1. He's going to crack the door open on a discussion concerning his apostleship in verse 1. Verse 2, he's going to crack the door open on a discussion concerning his gospel message. The third one we'll see in verses 3 and 4, he's going to crack the door open on a discussion concerning Christ's death and the significance of that death. And then, as I've said in verse 5, he's going to close with a doxology. So we're going to walk through the introduction carefully this morning and understand exactly what he has said. But at the same time, as we do that, I want us to use the introduction to sort of preview the whole letter as we go. I want us to notice how the large pieces of the letter correspond with each of these three points that he's just, just introducing us to here. So let's do that beginning in verse 1. We find Paul defending his apostleship. Look back there. It says, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Now, in one way, he's starting here as he nearly always does. He's identifying himself as an apostle, and he's not using that term in a general sense. You can talk about apostle in a general way. The word just has to do with being sent. It's not how he's using it here, though. He's using the word apostle in a very technical, official way, uh, referring to the title of the office of apostle. It's one of the gifts that God has given to the church. It's part of the foundation of the church. The teaching of the apostles and prophets, Ephesians 3, being the foundation of the church. That's what he's talking about. He's claiming apostolic authority in this introduction. Now, what, what should catch our attention, especially in verse 1, though, because like I said, he does that often in his introductions. But here in verse 1, he qualifies it or he describes it in a very unusual way. He felt the need to describe it in a particular way, which again helps us to see why he's writing this letter. He says that he's an apostle not from men nor through man. Do you see that? And so we get already here our first clue from Paul about what he's going to spend much of his time dealing with in this letter. This is an accusation that he has learned is coming from his opponents in Galatia. What we're going to see as we work through Galatians is that there are some in and among these churches that have been working to discredit the Apostle Paul. Specifically, they, they don't like his message. It's his message that they hate. They don't like his presentation of the good news of Jesus Christ. But what we're finding in verse 1 is they've tried to discredit his message by discrediting him, his person. They're aiming at his message, but it's going to be hard to pull people away from his message if they believe that he is a legitimate apostle of Christ. 
So their method has been to argue that Paul's authority as he's presenting the gospel reflects an authority of human origin. It is not divine authority. It is man-made. And it's man-made in a couple of ways specifically. This is their, this is their argument. Uh, one of those is Paul was not one of the original 12, is he? He's not one who followed Christ around in his earthly ministry and learned from him face-to-face while he was ministering. Thus, the authority that Paul's claiming really just comes down to him trying to ride the coattails of other men. That's what, he's, that's what this guy's doing. He's claiming authority, but he's just grabbing on to other men and their authority. We'll see him deal with this, with this accusation. The second way that they're seeing him as being of man-made authority is they're, they're going to argue he's using his authority in a way that is man-pleasing. He's, trying, he's being a people-pleaser here, and so he's using an authority to appeal to the, to the flesh. How on earth could someone accuse Paul of being man-pleasing? It's kind of hard to imagine, uh, but we'll see it clearly as we go through. He is going to claim that the gospel sets people free and that it does not require people to submit to Old Testament requirements and laws and customs. That's what he's going to be uh, announcing as something new that has come in Christ. And his opponents hear that and they say, you're, just, you're simplifying the gospel to please man. That's what you're doing. Grace through faith alone, in Christ alone, mm, too simple. Must be a man-pleasing message. And so we'll hear him bring this up. You can see down in verse 10 of this chapter, he'll ask, am I now seeking the favor of man? This little crack open door is going to account for most of the rest of chapter 1 as we go through it. And it will account for the end of chapter 6. There again, he'll be forced to defend himself against personal attacks and attempts to discredit him. But here, we already get a glimpse of what he's going to say. No. (laughs) Uh, My apostleship was not from men nor through man. Rather, it was through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. And if you remember Paul's life story, you know that that's quite literally true, isn't it? His apostleship came to him through Jesus Christ. We have the account in Acts 9 of him literally being knocked to the ground by the risen Christ, pulling him out of his former life and into a life of service to him. And there are some some powerful words in Acts 9.15 when Jesus is speaking to Ananias. You remember that? He sends Ananias to Paul, then Saul, while he was still blinded. Ananias is fearful to go. And in Acts 9.15, 9, it says this, But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. This is what is said concerning the commissioning and sending of Paul. His apostleship is from the Lord Jesus Christ. And more than that, Paul's going to give some amazing description later on in this letter about his post-conversion life and how he was taught to understand the Scriptures by direct revelation from Christ himself. 
So he's going to have to respond to this accusation with these arguments. Let's not fail to notice, though, as we're hearing in this introduction, he doesn't just attribute his apostleship to Christ, Jesus, does he? You notice he says it was through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. His divine commissioning and him as gift to the church was, was given from Jesus Christ and the, the Father. And I think there are two reasons that he would mention this. One of them we'll come back to when we get down to verse 4. Uh, but one of them is that Paul's apostleship is a spiritual office of the church. I mentioned it before. Ephesians chapter 4 describes uh, God, through the Holy Spirit, giving gifts to His church, to His people. And those gifts are the offices and the unique giftings, among them being the apostles. Our historic creeds and confessions have long affirmed that the Holy Spirit is sent by the Father and the Son. And so I think for Paul to attribute his apostleship here specifically to Father and Son is actually to credit the Holy Spirit with the gifting of that role and authority that he has. So the first thing he's doing here in this introduction is to start a theme, to crack open a door of defending his gospel message by defending his divinely appointed apostleship. The second thing that he is going to open up in terms of a discussion point here, we find in verse 2. Verse 2 seems like a very small addition, just a part of the uh, normal introduction. He says, and all the brothers who are with me. I don't think this is small. I think he's doing something very specific. You could even say very sneaky here given what he's about to have to do in the rest of the letter. And I think what he's doing is this. He is giving the other side of the coin to what he just said. It is true, as he said, that his authority and therefore his gospel message did not originate in men. That's true. But here's what we find in verse 2. Don't make any mistake. What Paul is writing, he is writing with the support and backing of God's people. The message he is bringing to the church is the message that all his brothers bring to the church. And when we get into chapter 2, we're going to hear uh, him say, you could even look over there in verse 6, Galatians 2, 6. He's going to recount having gone back to Jerusalem and met with the apostles, the rest of the apostles. He'll call them in verse uh, 8, or is it verse 9, the pillars of the church. He's going to meet with them. And you see in verse 6 where it says, they added nothing to me. What he means by that is, they heard the, the, the gospel presentation that Paul has been declaring, and they judged him to have the complete and faithful gospel proclamation. His message is in line with the message that faithful brothers and sisters are bringing. And what he says here in verse 2 in our passage gives backing to the attack he's about to go on. I mean, next week, starting in verse 6. He's going to go on an attack. And the question he's going to put to his hearers is this. Whose gospel has actually twisted the truth? You have my presentation of the good news of Jesus Christ, and you have my opponents. Judge for yourselves. Whose gospel has twisted the truth? Paul says, I bring to you the same message that all my brothers and sisters in Christ bring. So by the end of verse 2, here's what he's done already. He's set himself up to defend his message by defending his apostleship, 
He has hinted at the fact that he is joined by the faithful people of God. And now he turns our attention to the Lord Jesus Christ. Verses 3 and 4. This is where we ought to spend the bulk of our time here this morning. Let me read them together. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. The conversation, the theme that he's kicking off here is going to lead to the largest part of this entire letter. The concept he's just introduced, in verse 4 specifically, is the impetus behind everything he will say in chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 5, chapter 6. This is huge. Look again at what he says here. He's praying for grace and peace to his readers. We'll get into that more later as well. That grace and peace is is given to us on the basis of what he says here in verse 4 as he fixes our eyes on Christ. Christ, he says, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. My friends, we've got a lot to think about in that statement this morning. As he mentions this present evil age, he brings into our minds not just a, not just a a concept or a reality, but an entire worldview that is expressed by the New Testament authors and is expressed by the Old Testament authors. Writers of Scripture saw the world in this way, that there is a present age, but there is an age that is to come as well. And here he describes the present age with a very important word, evil. This present evil age. It's the sort of thing that he speaks about in 1 Corinthians 7, 31, when he says, the present form of this world is passing away. You're going to see that the word age and the word world are used interchangeably in these ways, but they're talking about the same thing. They're talking about a particular world system of attitude and conviction and loves. And he says in 1 Corinthians 7, the present form of this world is passing away. He'll talk about an old friend named Demas in 2 Timothy 4.10. Do you remember Demas? He mentions... Paul mentions Demas on more than one occasion throughout the New Testament. Usually, Demas' name is at the end of letters. In Philemon and Colossians, Paul is signing off. And, he, and he, he puts in those letters, Demas greets you as well. Demas, a fellow, um, a fellow soldier in the cause of Christ. But by the end of his ministry, I mean here, Galatians, the very start of Paul's ministry. Second Timothy, by the end of his ministry, things have changed. Demas has left Paul. And what Paul, <coughs> what Paul tells us in 2 Timothy 4.10 is he tells us why Demas left. There came a point in time where Demas had to choose. What do I truly love? Where do I belong? Do I love the present age? Or am I a creature of the age to come? And when it was put to Demas, I don't know the situation, when the rubber met the road, Demas was in love with this present age. And he couldn't stay with Paul, therefore. And you can hear the pain in Paul, I think, as you hear him speak of that. 
Romans chapter 12. I would love for you to turn with me here for a moment. Romans 12 and look at verse 2. We have in these first couple of verses the beginning of Paul's inspired words of application in Romans. He has been giving uh, the doctrine, the news of the gospel in Romans 1 to 11. Doesn't mean there's no application there. There is. But in chapter 12, there's a significant shift where he starts to issue commands and exhortations about how the Christian should live in light of the gospel. And I mean, he gets pretty specific. He's going to say in verses 7 and 8 of this chapter, serve each other passionately with the abilities God has given you. Uh, Love each other with brotherly affection, verse 10. He's going to get this specific in verse 11. Do not be slothful. I mean, really specific, practical commands of how to live out the gospel realities. But before he gets to those very specific things, he gives a couple of commands in verses 1 and 2 that come first because they have to precede those other things. If you're going to be able to obey in the specifics, there's something foundational that you must do. One of those we find in verse 2. Paul says this, Do not be conformed to this age. Most of our English translations say world there. It's aeon. It's the same word that he uses here in our passage, the present evil age. Do not be conformed to this age. And think of all that is present in that command, all of the assumptions that are there. There is a present evil age that surrounds us. There was for believers in his time. There was for the, for the Christians in the year 1500. There is for us now in the year 2021. We are surrounded by a present age that is evil, and we see it in the attitudes, the assumptions, the loves. We see it in the priorities of the faithless world around us. The representation of it changes through time. It hasn't always been the same experience to live in this world, but it has always been hostile. And here what we find from Paul is the command. It is a command, isn't it? That we are not to let ourselves live, think, act. We're not to let ourselves be in conformity to that age. This is a trial, this is a calling that has faced every Christian throughout all of uh, of this era. We, We have always been born, lived, and died surrounded by a present evil age. And I just wonder this morning if if the Lord isn't bringing us back to these realities right now because we need right now to be reminded. We do not wake up every day in a safe place. There are enemies. There are forces at work that we must be actively engaged against. And where will that battle take place? Well, it has many manifestations, but verse 3 tells us where the, battle, uh, where the battle originates. Do not be conformed to this world, he says, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. This is a battle that takes place on the battlefield of your mind. So I would just put the question to you this morning as it has come up. 
Are you mindful in these days as you live your life that every day your mind is in the midst of a battleground? If our mind is in the midst of a battleground, there is battle to be done. There are guards to be up. There is watchfulness to be had. The Holy Spirit says to us through Paul, do not be conformed to the spirit of this present evil age. Now come back into Galatians. The more we consider the pressing need behind that command in Romans 12 too, I mean, there's a lot of things we need to think about as far as how to uh, live in the light of that, how to apply that. What we have in Galatians 1, though, is something tremendously assuring and beautiful. In the news of verse 4, how is it that I can be rescued from this present evil age? Again, as the Spirit works in His people, this comes out in the form of actions. But if I'm asking in the fundamental question, what must I do to be rescued? Paul's answer here is, you're asking the wrong question. The answer is not found in what we do. It is found in what Jesus has done. And so we find here in verse 4 a tremendous source of relief and assurance and encouragement. Christ gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age. And I stand here and I tell you today, he succeeded. And this is not speaking about a hope. It's not speaking about a plan, although the salvation he has brought to us is being worked out and there's still more yet to experience as we'll see. But it is true to say of his people today, Christ has rescued us from this present evil age. So that Jesus will speak of his people when he prays for us in John 17. You remember what he said about those who belong to him. He said, they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. And let's think about that. Let's apply that to what we see here in Galatians 1.4. Paul tells us that we have been delivered from this present evil age. And yet you might think to yourself, maybe you're thinking it right now. Well, I'm still here. It's a present evil age, and here I sit. Have I really been rescued from this? And I think Jesus' words in John 17 are very helpful for us to understand what that means. We are not of this world. We are not of this present evil age, although he has left us in to live in this present evil age. So when Paul says that we've been delivered from this evil age, here's what he means. And just We have to think about this. He is saying to us, we have been granted in Christ the grace to live the life of the age to come in the midst of this present evil age. It's something amazing that is true about believers. This side of death. He's going to say as well in Titus 2, 11 and 12, he'll, he'll word it differently here. He'll talk in terms of the grace of God. And here's what he'll say. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Verse 12, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, Upright and godly lives, listen, 
in the present age. That's the emphasis. My friends, when we die, or when the Lord Jesus returns and we are glorified, we will live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. It will be wonderful, but when Christ returns, he will have put sin to death, won't he? It'll be wonderful, but it won't be surprising that that's how we live, because sin has been put to death. But he's telling us here, God has granted us by his grace to live such a life now, when sin has not yet been fully conquered. This is what he's working in us. It doesn't happen fully. This is what we're about to talk about. But there is grace at work in us such that we as Christians live the life of the age to come. There is manifestation of that life being represented in this world through Christians. It is amazing. We do not spend enough time thinking about this. You did not take yourself seriously enough when you woke up and got out of bed this morning. I'm going to let that hang there because there's another way we could say the opposite. In another sense, we take ourselves far too seriously, right? We need to be able to say that as well. I hope you understand the difference. God is working something miraculous in this age through his people, and he is letting you be a part of it. Do we think of ourselves in those terms as we wake up and get out of bed for another day? The amazement and the mystery of what God is doing through his people. And again, it's not things he will do only in the future. He is, right now, renewing your mind. I mean, as you sit here, if you're not resisting the work of the Holy Spirit, and you can do that, if you're not resisting the Holy Spirit's work, he is renewing your mind right now as you sit under the preached word of God. Did you come to church this morning expectant, thinking in those terms? The Lord has a, has a specific plan of transformation through the gathering of his people and the ministry of his word. Jesus Christ is interceding for us as we speak. The, the one who's called the God of this age, Satan, as we speak, no longer has any accusations to bring concerning you to the throne. I would just invite you to take a moment right now and remember the truth applied to you of the statement in verse 4. Christ gave himself for your sins to deliver you from the present evil age. Live in the peaceful rest of that reality, and Titus 2 says it will teach you how to let go of worldly desires. It'll teach you how to live sensibly. Is there a shortage of sensible living today? It will teach you how to live sensibly in this life. It will purify your living. This is what Paul tells us in Titus. Now then, in terms of this introduction by Paul, what verse 4 is doing is it's opening up for us a line of thought that, as I've said, will encompass a large portion of this letter. And here's one way we could put it. He's bringing up here the matter of the difference between the old and the new. We've said it in terms of the present evil age and the age that is to come, but you could also think in terms of the old and the new. What is it that marks the division between the old and the new? What is it that signals the death sentence of the old 
although it has not fully died? What is it that signals the inbreaking of the new, although it has not fully broken in? What's the death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ and the giving of the Spirit at Pentecost? I think that's why, even in verse 1, why Paul describes the Father as the one who raised Christ from the dead. I think he's already going there then because he's starting to point us to this old, new distinction. And there's a way we usually talk about that. It's thrown around. Maybe, maybe you've heard it and you've never even considered what it means. Have you heard people talk about already and not yet? Life and the already, not yet, it's a, it's a common way for us to speak. It's very helpful, too, because it gets at this very reality. The fact is, we live today in a strange situation. We live in a time in history when the, again, 1 Corinthians 7.31, when the old is passing away, and yet it has not fully passed away, we are not of that age. We are new creatures given the life of the new that is to come. And so we are walking, talking examples and foreshadowings of God's plan concerning the new. Yet we live our lives in the old. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Paul is going to dive into this in this letter because in his estimation... The fundamental error that's happening in these churches in Galatia is that they are being led astray by being told they need to grab onto things that belonged to the old and not the new. They've made a category error. They started well, but they've been being deceived. And so he's going to spend a lot of time, for example, in Galatians 3 and 4, talking about the law, which is a tricky term because that can mean a number of things. But the way he's going to speak about that word, the sense he's going to use it, is going to refer to something that belonged to the old age. It couldn't impart life. It's something that God's people were, in one sense, held captive under. In another sense, were being taught by temporarily until Christ could come and rescue them out from under it. This is how he's going to, to be speaking. He's going to help them to see the category differences. He's going to help us to see is this something you feel just tremendously clear on in your mind? I would bet not. I think this is something that is very unclear to us. We've got a lot to do here. This is going to be fantastic. He is also, though, going to take great pains, even as he talks about the law in that sense, to make clear that the eternal moral requirements of the law are a reflection of the character of God, unchanging, and in fact are the fruit of the Holy Spirit that Christ has given to us in the age of the new. And so chapters 5 and 6 will be entirely taken up in that description of what the new really looks like. And we've got some incredible things to consider from the Holy Spirit in these upcoming months. And they will carry tremendous implications about 2021 and beyond. My hope is that it will also help us to broaden our perspective, to stop fixating on how should I respond to the 2021 events and start thinking more in terms of, and even to get an answer to that question, thinking in terms of what is it to live now as a believer, post-death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
What does it mean for me to live and think and act as a Christian, living in just this latest manifestation of the present evil age? So again, so far we've heard in Paul's introduction three little conversation starters. He's very sneaky. He's a very good writer. That that are leading the places he's going to camp out on in this letter. His apostleship is from Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit. His gospel is the gospel of the faithful church. And third, his gospel is centered on Christ's finished work, which has marked the death sentence to the present evil age and the beginning of the age to come. And he ends his introduction then, coming into verse 5, with a doxology. He ends it this way, speaking of God the Father. He says, to whom be the glory forever and ever. I hope you can see already, it's not going to be difficult for us to see how Paul's entire letter will serve the end of glorifying God. I mean, you just think of the things that we've already been starting to peek at through this introduction. They show God in all of his divine glory to be a God who cares for his people. A God who has acted in all patience and mercy with a determined end, and that is to make us like his son. This is his plan for you. Who's going to mess that up? We will grow increasingly excited as we meditate on these things, and the excitement will always lead to the same place. We will glorify our God who has so chosen to act this way and to freely include me in this incredible picture. The result will be something beautiful. We can think of it this way, too, bringing in the early part of verse 3. Paul is able to declare grace and peace to God's people on the basis of these things. Have you thought about that lately, how wonderful that is? That such is the God that we worship. Such is this God whose driving concern always is his own glory, must be, lest he be an idolater. Such is this God that the plans that he devise that bring him the most glory, guess what? They also happen to be just exactly the plans that bring his people grace and peace. Who is this? And as we close on this thought this morning, I would, I would hold up for us the reality of verse 4. That our Lord Jesus would give himself to atone for our sins so that we would be delivered from this present evil age. How blessed are we who have fled to Christ for rescue? We are truly blessed. It must be mentioned as well there may well be those in this room who have not yet fled to Christ. Feel the love of God as he has led you to sit and to hear what he has done for his people, who he is, and know that the offer is given to you every day that you would draw breath. How blessed are those who have fled to Christ. I'll close this morning with something that Charles Spurgeon said on this account in reflection on verse 4, 
thought it very helpful and wanted to share it with you. It's fitting, I've, I've realized, get this, this, this Sunday in January, today, is the 170th anniversary of his conversion. That happened at age 15 on a snowy morning as the snow drove him into a particular church to hear the gospel. This Sunday of January in 1850. That kind of gives me uh, the, I don't know, goosebumps. We can channel our Spurgeon here. Listen to this. My prayer is as... Uh, as you hear, because he's giving a description of God's people in this, in, in light of verse 4. My prayer is this, that it would be encouraging you, to you to hear this, but also that as you hear the description, that it would be a sanctifying thing to hear. And what I mean is, if there are things in this description he gives that you hear, and your first thought is how you fall short of that, I pray that it would be what God intends it to be. A reminder to you of the plans that he has for you and an excitement at God bringing this back to your mind so that you might pursue harder after him. Listen to Spurgeon. Christ came to gather out a people and he did gather them out. A holy people who could not and would not live as the rest of the world lived. They went up and down in the earth, attending faithfully to the duties of daily life, yet everywhere marked as differing from other men. Their moral tone, their whole thought about the things of this world and the next, was altogether different from that of the rest of mankind. For Christ had come to draw them out of the kennel of iniquity in which others lived like beasts. to lift them up out of the bog of sin and make them to be a pure-minded, holy, kind, generous, loving people who should be like their master, Jesus Christ. For this purpose, the Savior died. Would you pray with me? Father, we are overjoyed that day after day, your promises remain trustworthy and true. We thank you for what you have done for us, your people, in Christ. And we ask, Lord, for a spirit to treasure these things more, for a mind to meditate on these realities more, and for the wisdom to know how to live in light of the things that you have shown us in your Son in light of the works that you have accomplished once for all in your Son. Help us, Lord, to be the most restful people on this planet because we rest on the surest foundation. And help us, Lord, to be the most active people on this planet, the hardest working, knowing the prize, knowing what it cost for us to be remade in his image as we are and knowing the sure forgiveness and patience and mercy that is everlasting, so that no discouragement, no, sh no, no falling short, no temporary failure ever would need to stop our progress. But we are a people who may, because of Christ, always get up and press on. Father, I pray if there are those here who are heavy under a particular sin that they have battled for a long time, 
and perhaps have seemed to have temporarily given up on the battle because after all, I battled three years ago and nothing came of it. And so why try again? Lord, help us all to remember that your Holy Spirit is sovereign over the timing of our sanctification and that we are called to battle faithfully and to pray and ask, Lord, that you would give sanctification. Help us, Lord, not to grow impatient with your timing, but always to faithfully chase after Christ. I pray that you would bless us richly through your word in Galatians this morning. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand with me for our benediction this morning. We'll just use the words of verses 4 and 5 as God's closing blessing on his children this morning. May grace and peace be yours from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for your sins to deliver you from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen.